Well, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to continue our series that we've been working through there, and we are nearing the end of this wonderful book, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, this is one of those cheerful, soothing passages, isn't it? That we turn to at the end of a long day when we're stressed out. I mean, what's not to love? We've got weeping and howling, miseries, rotten riches, moth-chewed clothes, burning flesh, fattened hearts, and murder. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Do we feel the same way about this passage as we do about Psalm 23? Probably not. But believe it or not, even though the dire warning of this passage screams out from the page, there is great comfort to be had in it, as there is in all scripture. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. You have chosen not to leave us grasping for truth, but have clearly presented to it, it to us in so many words that you inspired the authors of scripture to share with us, to write down for us, to guide our lives and encourage us. God, I pray that we would understand this passage, that we would understand what you have to teach us through it. God, I pray that you would encourage us and show us how to apply it to our lives so that we can live holy and blameless before you. Amen. Well, the first thing we see when we're reading in this passage is that it seems to have a different audience from the rest of the book. I mean, up until now, and I guess a little bit at the end of chapter four, James has been addressing brothers this, brothers that. But now we've got, come now, you rich. And so we have to ask, is James actually changing his audience here? Or is he addressing this hypothetical audience for the benefit of the listeners that is the same as the rest of the book? And I think that's the case. Because James has already talked about the rich in this book. And if you remember from my first sermon on this book, I said that I think this book is a lot more connected than most commentators believe. And that's because these themes keep on coming up through it. So in James chapter 2, verses 6, he says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And it's amazing when you see the description of the way that the rich behaved in chapter 5 here, that the church would pander to them, that the church would turn to the rich and give them preferential treatment in the churches over a poor person when the rich are oppressing people so clearly and dragging even the brothers into court. So just a little reflection back on that point um, from chapter 2. 
But I believe that this passage is still addressed to the brothers for the benefit of their hearing and that this is a hypothetical audience because honestly, I don't think James would expect the people who are referred to in this way to read his letters. Maybe they would and maybe it would encourage them to repentance. Um, but I think his primary audience is still the brothers in the church. That This is a word for us. We know that in the Bible, riches are not condemned in themselves. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. So I guess that goes against that song that says, mo money, mo problems. Instead, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. But you might say, doesn't the Bible say money is the root of all evil? Well, almost. It says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we see that the problem is not with riches in themselves, but in our affections, when we place them a higher position than they should have. Even so, we know that the rich as a social class are sometimes prone to evil behavior. And that's the emphasis that James gives here. We know that earthly goods are perishing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we see that James is teaching here in chapter 5 the same thing that his brother Jesus taught earlier in Jesus' life. The things that ought to be a blessing that God gives us turn out to be a curse when we put them at a higher priority than they should be. And I've talked about this before, but I want to repeat it because it's so important. God pours out blessings on the entire earth. He makes the rain to fall on the rich and the poor alike, on the blessed, on the, the faithful people, as well as those who are not. And those blessings are given unto us for one purpose, and that is to increase our thankfulness and to cause us to glorify his name. Those who trust in Jesus and are thankful to him for their righteousness, when they receive those blessings, it increases their thanks. But those who are still trying to earn salvation or those who reject God do not give thanks for the good things that God gives them. And so those thanks end up being, those blessings, I mean, end up being a greater condemnation for them because where they should give thanks, they refuse to. They heap up sin upon sin. And we see that here where the very things that should give pleasure to these people, their clothing, their money, their food, end up burning at their flesh, rotting away, and are a testament against them. These blessings that should have been things to give thanks for are a testament that they have received them and not given thanks to our Lord. And that's true of every kind of idolatry. There are so many good things that God gives us, but when we use them in the wrong way, when we place them higher above our Lord, then it ends up being a curse. I remember when I was a kid, I had a flashlight, and I loved that flashlight, and I used it all the time, and then I lost it. And months, maybe years later, I found it again. And I was so excited, and I went and I clicked the button, and it didn't turn on, obviously. So I thought, well, I'll just change the batteries. And I pulled it apart, and the batteries were covered in this nasty white powder. So being an ignorant young boy, I started scraping that stuff off with my fingernail, trying to clean it off. And my dad found me eventually and said, you don't want to be touching that stuff. It's going to make your skin burn. 
the thing that I loved, that flashlight that I loved so much, would have been a source of pain for me if my father hadn't come and corrected me. And it's the same way for these rich, that the things that they love end up being a source of pain and burn their flesh like fire. The text says that they have laid up treasure in the last days. And we need to understand clearly what that means. The last days were frequently predicted in the Old Testament prophets. And in the largest sense, they began with the birth of Jesus and will end at his second coming. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives a sermon uh, at the event that we now call Pentecost. And the miracle of tongues that the people were seeing was not the result of drunkenness, but rather a fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel gave about the last days, that the men and women will speak in tongues, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on in his first epistle, chapter 1. He says, He, being Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So Jesus was revealed at the beginning of the last times. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, the first couple of verses say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So you could say, if it's been the last days for 2,000 years, why should I worry now? Well, in a smaller sense, this passage is talking about your last days. We see James in chapter 4, verse 14, refers to that. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We don't know how many days are left of the last days. And we don't know how many days are left of our own last days. And the moment that I die, what good do riches do me? I can't use them anymore. So what good do they do? I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's true. But what do they win? They win a greater share of condemnation because they have placed riches above where it ought to be. A love of money is the source of evil. So I don't know if we want to be in that competition to be storing up toys to see if we can win the most condemnation. I certainly don't want to be. Verse 4 said, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this harkens back to some of the Old Testament laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that says that day laborers were to be paid the same day that they worked. And that was so important for them because these people were not living paycheck to paycheck where they bought groceries for the week. They would go straight from the fields, take their money to the store, buy food, go home and cook it and eat it that night. And if they were lucky, there would be something left over for the next morning. So withholding a paycheck from them, a daily paycheck, was withholding food from them for that night and for their families. And the phrase Lord of hosts here 
is important to understand as well. The NIV translates it as Lord Almighty, and I honestly prefer the translation Lord of Hosts. It's coming from the word Sabaoth. That word host or almighty is Sabaoth. You may remember the hymn that says, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Strong's Concordance of the Bible explains it as a limitless company or innumerable throng. How terrifying to know that your evil deeds have been found out by the commander of such an army. It's like God is pointing out that coin in your piggy bank was gotten by cheating. That dollar in your 401k comes from cheating on your taxes. That one was from wasting time, and that one was stolen from a poor worker where you bought a cheap product and the worker wasn't compensated fairly. And how does God know about these things? Well, yes, he knows all things, but more than that, this passage says that the very things that we treasure will cry out to him and tell him how we got those things. We need to be careful of the love of money. Verse 5 says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And oftentimes we think of the word luxury as, you know, yachts and cruise trips. Well, maybe less cruises these days, but luxury is the idea of kind of the things that everybody doesn't have, that only the top people have. Well, if you look at what we have in comparison to the rest of the world, if you look at what we have in comparison to the people throughout history, each one of us lives in luxury. I mean, think about knowledge. Compared to the history of the world, anyone with an internet connection is wealthier in knowledge than all of the kings and presidents of history up until about 1980 when electronic records started to be popular. I mean, think about the size of a room that you would need and the number of books you would need just to store Wikipedia. I uh, stumbled across a resource that has um, basically all of the writings of the early church fathers translated into English and available in electronic form on the internet for free. I mean, it's incredible the number of things, the number of resources that we have available to us. And books used to be valuable. Now they're sent out a dime a dozen, and we can buy them everywhere. So we are in luxury when it comes to knowledge. And then think about spices. In the Middle Ages, spices were the most important part of the world economy. It's why the Americas were discovered by Europe because they were searching for alternate trade routes to trade spices. They were as valuable as gold, and they were used to mask the flavor of spoiled food. Because without refrigeration, as meat started to go bad, you wanted to be able to throw some curry on there to cover up that flavor. Well, gold is currently worth about $1,500 per ounce. And cinnamon is worth 36 cents an ounce. So if you want to feel rich, eat a cinnamon roll. Because just the cinnamon in one cinnamon roll would have cost the equivalent of $70 in the Middle Ages. So David Kirk, when he brings those pans full of cinnamon rolls, is the wealthiest guy around. We live in luxury. And then think about hygiene. That's something that's at the top of our mind these days. Christy and I had the opportunity to do a short-term volunteer missions trip um, in Southeast Asia before we joined the Peace Corps um, in the fall of 2011. And one of the places that we went to was Indonesia. There was a, a system, a water system, that the missions organization we were with um, had put in there. And so we were 
going and interviewing the people in the town so that we could uh, write about the project and use it for their publicity, for the mission's publicity. Um, so they brought in this water. And previously, the people had had to walk about two miles in order to get water and carry it back in buckets to their house to use. Obviously, they would go down to the river to bathe. They would go down to the river to wash their clothes because it's easier to carry dry clothes than to carry water up. But there are some things that they just had to do at the house, like cooking, like cleaning the house, and then just the water to drink. And it was really cool seeing this system and how excited they were about it. And we got to talk to some of the men, we got to talk to some of the kids, but it was the women that really impressed me with their story that stuck with me because it was the women who did most of the hauling of water. They were the ones going and carrying 40 or 50 pounds of water at a time on their shoulders two miles back to the house. And that's for a five-gallon bucket. Imagine how much water you go through every day. And imagine what it would be like to have to carry every drop of that. One of the women said that she was so proud because her house was clean. It was easy to clean the house now because she could go and get water from the community tap. It was right there in her block. and She could go up and get all the water that she needed. And I learned that day that sufficiency starts with running water and cheap soap when it comes to hygiene. Everything beyond that is luxury. So if you have water piped into your house instead of around the block, if you have it in multiple places in your house, and if you have a water heater, you are living in greater luxury than much of the world today and in greater luxury than basically all of humanity throughout all of history. We are truly blessed. And we need to appreciate that, especially in these times where hygiene is so important. The end of verse 5 says that you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And I think that there's probably two different ways to understand this verse. The first is it could refer to gorging yourself like every day is slaughter day. Before refrigeration, uh, getting together to kill an animal was kind of a family affair or even a community affair because you can't just advance to eat an entire pig or sheep or cow by yourself. You need help to do it before it spoils. And so they would get together and they would do all of the work together, but also they would eat the things that go bad the first. The first day they would gorge themselves eating as much as possible because you knew that by the second day or the third day it wouldn't taste quite as good. And by day four, you'd be reaching for those spices to pour it on. So they would eat the liver and the heart and the kidneys first, those things that go bad so quickly, those rich, rich foods that come from an animal. So that's one possibility. The second possibility uh, of the way that James is using this day of slaughter is saying that the rich are like an animal that has been fattened, who has no idea that slaughter day is tomorrow. I apologize for the uh, graphic language here, description, but I want you to understand the way that this language works. If you've never killed an animal, you may not realize that the internal organs are just covered in layers of fat. And if an animal is fairly healthy, those layers are thin around the organs, and they're soft, and they're not really that gross. But I've uh, killed chickens for you know, of our laying hens that had two inches, maybe even a little bit more of fat in the abdominal cavity. And that's on a little tiny 10-pound bird. So imagine what it looks like 
on something the size of a cow. They fattened their hearts through all of this um, rich food with no idea that the day of slaughter is coming, just as an animal has no understanding how much is left of its life. Verse 6 says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, it's possible that through a corruption of the justice system, these rich people that James is talking about have literally result or caused the death of innocent people. Another possibility is that he's talking about small injustices adding up over time. One of my favorite authors is Terry Pratchett. And in his book, Going Postal, he writes about a con man who forged bank certificates and turned them in for real money and caused an economic collapse. Well, this man was caught, and the ruler of the city thought, if he's smart enough to do that, if he's got the people skills to do that, maybe I can help him reform and put him in charge of the postal system so that he can use those skills for good. But the ruler didn't just send him out there and say, do a better job. He put a parole officer to watch over him. And that parole officer at one time accuses the man, the con artist, of killing. And his response is, I have never laid a finger on anyone in my life. I may be all the things you know I am, but I am not a killer. I have never so much as drawn a sword. And the officer's response is, no, you have not. But you have stolen, embezzled, defrauded, and swindled without discrimination. You have ruined businesses and destroyed jobs. When banks fail, it is seldom bankers who starve. Your actions have taken money from those who had little enough to begin with. In a myriad of small ways, you have hastened the deaths of many. You did not know them. You did not see them bleed. But you snatched bread from their mouths and tore clothes from their backs. By the way, Terry Pratchett is not a Christian. He's an atheist. But he understood that small injustices add up. We need to be careful to catch our sin before it gets big. And even when it stays small, we need to be careful to check the frequency to make sure that it's not adding up to a big problem. Because we are accountable for our actions. But more importantly than that, we have a responsibility to do right towards other people, to spread the glory of our God and encourage them to look at him, not because of the good things that we do, but as evidence of the good that he has done to us. And if we are blind to our small injustices, our witness may not be as powerful as it should be. So we have to ask, why does James put this commentary about the rich into a book that is obviously addressed to the brothers across the vast majority of it? And I think there are two reasons. First is that he wants to encourage us that judgment is coming for those who abuse their wealth and power. We've all cried out, God, why would you let these things happen? And the psalmist in chapter 10, Psalm 10, I think, writes this really eloquently, both presenting the problem and also the answer to it that James also presents us here. So I'm going to turn to and uh, read Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that you have devised. 
For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This passage gives us hope because it reminds us that God is in control and he is just. And the people who love money and abuse that power will not be able to do so without being called to account. The corrosion is coming that will eat at their flesh and call out their condemnation before God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And that is the first reason I think that James gives us this chunk of address towards the rich. But I think there is a true warning to warn us against the love of wealth. So I want to ask you, what should a Christian be doing in these days when there are so many who are panicking and are afraid and making silly decisions? First of all, I want to say, when this thing has passed, and God willing it will, don't go back to your old ways of living. If you're somebody who felt the urge to go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff, whatever it may be, because you were afraid you wouldn't have enough, when supply chains are returned, Store up something then. Don't run out and do it now because you need to get what, only what you need so that other people can get what they need. But get those things, those basic necessities, so that you can have them and not feel like you have to panic the next time something like this comes up. I don't think that we should do this so that we can be confident in our own ability to provide for ourselves, but rather so that we can have something to share with others if the need arises. Secondly, if you are out of work in this time and you're concerned about not being able to make ends meet, please don't turn first to the government for help. I am so thankful that we live in a society that values the poor, that provides services through the government to make sure that people generally have what they need. We know those systems aren't perfect, but we as a society do believe that that is right. But it's not primarily the government's responsibility to take care of people. It's the churches. 
So if you feel in need in these times, don't deprive your brothers and sisters of the opportunity to share with you. And thirdly, if you're someone who has luxury even in this time, be ready to share it. I was talking with Ryan Buckner uh, probably at least a year ago, and he was telling me about a, uh, I think it was a blogger, who talked about being prepared to share until it hurts, to give until it hurts, meaning that we should notice a difference in our standard of living because of the amount that we give. So be prepared to do that. If you're living exactly the same way um, now as you would be if you gave nothing, if your standard of living is the same, then you may not be doing what God is calling you to, and you may not be as responsive to what he wants for your life. Again, so that we can share the wonder and the bounty and the blessing that God has given us. Through Abraham, all world, all families of the world will be blessed, and that promise is coming through us. We don't catch and receive the blessing of God to hold it, but rather we give it out to give glory to him and to draw more people to his name. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for all the good things that you've given us, for the food that we have, for the wonderful places that we have in this county to play, to get outside and see the sun, for the beautiful weather and the flowers that are coming. God, you have blessed us so richly. We do not look to our own power to keep us safe in this world, but rather we turn to you from whom all good comes. So God, thank you, and we worship you, and we pray that we could be used as tools for you to bless those around us. Amen. We're going to close with a couple more worship songs. And